and allow us to behold wondrous things. So, Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with us to Luke 24. Luke 24, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 35 this morning as we conclude our three-week series in the Passion Narrative. I wanted to, before we get started, I wanted to, to talk to you for just a second as you turn in the Bible. I just want to show you where next week we're going to start in Psalms. Psalms 1, every week we'll go through a Psalms. Uh, we're going to use this book in your growth group. And so out in the lobby, there's, if you're a teacher or an apprentice, you need to pick up a book. There's, the books are the same for both. There's going to be a guide for you every week that looks just like what you're used to seeing out there on the wall. So you basically read a chapter, and then we come in and talk about it. This will help us as we seek to apply Psalms 1 into our actual life. So make sure you avail yourself of that. If we run out of books, I'll have some by next week. And so, like I said, this week, if you've got your copy of your notes right here, should have a back and a front page on that. The Gospel Explained. The reason we're at Gospel Explained is because through this whole narrative, there's been one reality that is that the disciples didn't understand. Didn't understand what was happening. And so the two weeks ago, we looked at the fact they were walking towards Jerusalem, headed towards the Passover. Jesus is telling them what's about to happen, and they don't get it. Then it happens just as he said. Last week we looked at the gospel in full display, the cross and the resurrection. And now what we're getting is, is the response. The response from two of these followers of Christ on the road to Emmaus. So this, they're, what we're peering into into this conversation is, is how they are responding to the events that's just unfolded. What we looked at last week. So you can get settled today. We're not going to read the text. We're just going to let this narrative unfold as the, as the message unfolds. This is a what Luke's first recorded appearance of the risen Christ. And these, these two men, we know one of them's name. We don't know the other. They're walking towards Emmaus. This was seven miles outside of Jerusalem. We don't know the exact spot now of Emmaus, though people like to argue about it. The reality is, this is just part of their culture, is they walked, they talked. And they walked everywhere in that day. And so they were discussing this. The tragedy that they just had unfolded before them. And I, just to, what I want to try to get us to do is just put ourselves in, in their shoes for a minute. If you live long enough, you're going to experience tragedy. You're going to experience something shocking. Have you ever had someone you knew well, and then they did something that just lets you down? Maybe they walked away, maybe they, whatever it was, that you were just like, I wasn't expecting that, I, I thought, but now, you ever been there? If you're not, you'll, you will be. How about tragedy? You ever been through a tragedy that's marked by loss, whether that's cancer or health? Or death, and you're left with this unbearable pain of a loss of relationship, and you're left with this one big question: Why? Why? What? Why did this have to happen? 
What's the point? I thought I understood what was going to happen and now it's gone. You ever been there? <laughs> That's just where the guys on the road to Emmaus were. Thought I understood what was going on and now I don't know anything. This was not only them. This was the eleven locked up in a room hiding out of fear of the Jews. But just think, you came down to celebrate the Passover and you left with your whole hope, your whole future hope, gone. These men were in despair. And so, it was this tragic misunderstanding of the cross that led them to despair. And so when we enter into the road to Emmaus and they're walking... You gotta, you gotta see this from their perspective. Jesus is just a stranger. He walks up to them. Look, let's look at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. Verse 15. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing. So they're walking down the road talking about this. They're all upset and dismayed and going back and forth. And Jesus himself, Luke in verse 15, Luke wants to make sure we understand that. He himself walks up. Jesus walks up to him, intrudes himself into the conversation. And we see in verse 16, what's going on there? But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So were they... Really sunny day, they had their dark shades on. What was, what was going on there? This is what we call the divine passive. In the Greek, when something's passive, it means you're not doing it, it's being done to you. So something's being done to them to keep them. This is a divine restraining. Their eyes were kept, they did not recognize him. And so to them, he was just a stranger. A stranger that walked up and we see in verse 17... And, when, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still and looked sad. In other words, he just walked up to them and said, what you talking about? What you talking about? They were like, and so they're walking and just, they're down. And they literally they're stopped and they looked at him like, you've got to be the most uninformed stranger in Jerusalem. This is all any of us are talking about. Everybody, something big happened in the news, doesn't matter where you go, everybody's talking about it. This is what was happening. Look at verse 18. Don't you know the things that's been going on the last three days? It says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who don't know what's happening? Look what Jesus says, verse 19. What things? <laughs> what? He wasn't ignorant. Jesus was just a really good teacher. So if you're a teacher in here, you aspire to be a teacher. It doesn't matter whether you're teaching in the church or teaching in the public square somewhere. Learn from Jesus how to teach. And what does he do? He asks questions. Plays ignorant. Why? To get people to talk. This is what teachers do. Teaches, teaching is leading a discussion in order to reveal truth. I can remember when I was convicted of this. Spend years lecturing teaching. 
when I suddenly realized not what Jesus did. He preached, yes, he did, but when he taught, he created a discussion in order to reveal truth. In other words, he's creating a discussion in order to reveal truth. Who is truth? Him. He wants to reveal himself. This is why your growth group should have discussion on in them. They should. That's what Jesus is doing. These men were sad and disappointed because they didn't understand. So look at what he did. Verse 19, what he set up here. He allows these burden followers just to unload, to unpack their despair. Verse 19. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. What, what things? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, you don't know him. A man who was mighty, who was, a, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Verse 20. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So they just let go. All this burden, all their dismay and all their frustrations, they just let it out. We see clearly that the Jewish, the Jesus followers clearly blamed the religious leaders for the death of Christ. But here's the honest truth, and the Bible's brutally honest about this fact. The Christ followers didn't expect Jesus to rise, which means they didn't make it up. <laughs> they didn't make it up. They weren't expecting it. They were tore up about it. He was gone. Look at verse 21. We had hoped. They had hoped what? Look what it says. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's been three days since this happened. See, they were looking. Their hope was bent on this Israel's Savior. This political Savior to redeem his people and the Romans. We thought we understood and now he's gone. Besides, it's been three days. God's not going to intervene now. There's no hope. He's gone three days. And they even go from despair. Look to bewilderment. They're confused. Verse 22. Still unpacking. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And they didn't find his body. And they came back saying... They even seen a vision of the angel who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. So the women's report is early. The women's report was already spreading, but it's not understood. So it didn't give them comfort that the angel said Jesus was alive. It bewildered them. The cross had blasted their hope, and a, and a Messiah was going to set up a kingdom right then, going to deliver them. The cross... The tomb sealed it up forever. Jesus is just sitting there walking, walking, just listening. Listening, letting them unpack it. But he didn't stay quiet. So this unknown stranger now explains. So let's look at the victorious explanation. It leads these men that were in despair to joy. Jesus is going to explain himself from the Old Testament. So this stranger, remember he's still a stranger to him, he begins to explain. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Verse 26. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Look at verse 25. He said, Foolish ones. That's something for a stranger to say, isn't it? 
means dull. You're sort of dull. Why? He will. He asked the question. This was a, and we just assume it. You understand? You got to understand for these Jewish people, even today, they didn't have a box for this question. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer before he went to his glory? They were like, uh, no. <laughs> Saying it wasn't necessary. He's sitting there going, you know, keep in mind, he has not revealed himself yet. He's not doing it that way. He's using the, the Bible. He's using Scripture. He says, what does the Bible say? Doesn't Scripture say that he was supposed to suffer? Two key words, both necessary and then all. He said, wasn't it necessary? Then he explained it using all the Scripture. All of Scripture he brought it. He didn't say, he used the word the Christ. He didn't say, hey, it's me, dummy. I'm right here. He didn't. He says, what does the Bible say? Look at what it said. Verse 27. He interpreted. That means he explained it. What did he explain? Like, which scripture did he use? We're going to look at a couple. That's not the point. What he's explaining is biblical theology. We need to understand this. We're going to have some more books in the library next week about biblical theology because we have to understand the Bible is one story and Christ is at the center of it. And I am concerned that one of the reasons we neglect this much of our Bible is because we don't really understand that Leviticus is talking about Jesus. Numbers is pointing to Jesus. Deuteronomy is pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to Him. That's what He's explaining to them. All of this is about the Messiah. It's all pointing to me. It's pointing to the Christ. And didn't it say that He was going to have to suffer? Turn with me to Genesis 3.15. One of the, the, is the very first Messianic text after man sinned and ruined their relationship with God. We had a punishment, so you, you remember those things, and now the promise. Genesis 3.15 said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Here it is. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Does, here's what he's saying. Didn't, is, if that's not a messianic text, doesn't that necessitate suffering? So here's what I want you to do. Turn, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 21, verse 42. Matthew 21, verse 42. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at that text. And I'm going to read an Old Testament text. And I want you to see if you see it in there. Matthew 21, 42. Everybody have it? Listen to me. I'm going to read Psalms 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Do you see that in the Matthew 21, 42 text? It says, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. He's saying, The religious leaders rejected me, and God has made me the cornerstone. Jesus' life proved that suffering was necessary. 
not only in his life, but also in yours. Turn with me to another text, Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 37. Verse 37. I'm going to read Isaiah 53, verse 12. Look for it in the New Testament text. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see that in the text? Luke 22, Jesus says, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. He's already been telling them this. Now he's explaining it to them again. This was always about the Messiah that he must suffer before he entered into his glory. You see, if the disciples would have believed the scriptures, they wouldn't have been sad. They wouldn't have been confused. But they were. This is important. Scripture must be understood to be believed has to be understood to be believed. In other words, it must be interpreted properly. A little sidebar here. There's translations, and many of them are divided in two main categories. We use the ESV. We used to use the NASB, New American Standard, English Standard. Why do we, why do, we do that? Because it's more of a word-for-word -word translation. In other words, since most of us can't read Greek and Hebrew, we can feel confident with, the, with, these, with this translation because it's the closest to the original language. That's why we like to read it. But there's also translations out there that are thought for thought. Something like the New Living Translation. Listen, we don't need to be critical about this because what that translation is trying to do is capture the thought in the text. And this captures the word. Put them both together and it will help you in your spiritual life, especially those that you disciple. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying this is what God's word said. This is what it means. He's clearly explaining it. Isn't that what Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch? Remember Acts 8.31? It's not in your notes. He walks up to him. Remember the, the Ethiopian eunuch's reading Isaiah 53 and he says, you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guide me to it? So Philip jumps up in the chariot and explains it to him. The Lord saves him and he baptizes him right there on the side of the road. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Think about the two men. Salvation is not an intellectual ascent to information. For if they did, they understood the information. They had publicly witnessed. Look back up at verse 17. They had witnessed him powerful in word. They had heard him when he preached. They were there. They saw his deeds. He was powerful in deeds. They saw it. They saw him, they saw him feed the 5,000. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him heal the sick. They knew he was a prophet. They knew he claimed to be the Messiah. They even knew that the tomb was empty. And yet they didn't understand. Salvation is knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing his intimacy. And to have intimacy, there must be a revealing. We know this illustration well, but it fits so well here. Many people treat Jesus like their, fav their favorite baseball or football player, don't they? Memorize the statistics, 
know the wins and the losses. They even get a t-shirt that has the number on it of their favorite player. But guess what? You don't really know him. And one thing's for sure, he don't know you. Is this the way we see Jesus? You see, to these men, Jesus is still a stranger. Is Jesus still a stranger to you? And so, in the story now, they've been walking and he's been explaining and he's got them. <laughs> There's not a chance they're going to let this guy get away. He might be a stranger, but he's, he's saying something here. And so, come to this sort of fork in the road. Jesus acts like he's going to keep going. Look at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which was going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent. So he went with them. These guys must have been southern because the next thing you know they were eating. Right? Look at verse 30. When, when he was at the table. This is just a cultural reality. Hospitable people. Some of, our, some of our best growth groups are, are, are good because of the host home. You go to some of them, they're going to feed you. Next thing you know, they're going to stick food in front of you. This is what was happening. But look, there seems that Luke wants us to make sure that we pay attention to the details. Jesus reveals himself and then he's gone. When he was at the table, notice this, he took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. You see, that's a very Passover-like, Lord's Supper-like thing to do. Took the bread. Remember, he's the stranger. He took the bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them. It was at that moment that another divine passive thing happened. Verse 31, And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Don't miss that. You see, God has to do that. Jesus had explained God's word. But God must open their eyes. And so he did. And so it was at that moment that they experienced the victory that can only come from knowing the living Christ. And then it all made sense. Verse 32, look at it. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while He talked on the road, while He opened us up the Scriptures? We knew if something was happening, but now we see Him. Do you see the process? Word clearly explained. Hearts burned and God reveals His Son. This is his economy, brothers and sisters. It works. God knows his part. We don't have to do it. We must know ours. So here's the moment that their despair becomes joy. So this joy-filled followers, they just don't go to bed. <laughs> okay, well, good night. That was awesome. Let's talk about that in the morning. Breakfast at IHOP in the morning. Let's talk about that. No, no, no. They said, we got to go. They wanted to proclaim the good news. Look at verse 33. And they arose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven who were gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. And they told him what happened on the road. So do you see? Lack of understanding of Jesus looks like in your actual life 
confusion, sadness, despair, and hopelessness. Does that characterize your life? Or is your life characterized by understanding Jesus, which is both joy and mission? That is an objective question that needs to be answered in your life. You see, verse 32, this burning heart leads to mission. It leads to active mission. Burning hearts don't lead to just getting over it. It's got to do something. And so that word at the same hour, that means at once. And I, Have you ever been in a country where they didn't have electricity? You ever been in that situation? You ought to go to a third world country at night. Here's what you don't do. You don't go out at night. Because it's dark. Like no street lights, no, no. I mean, it's, it's go into a cave, turn the lights off. You can't see anything dark. They, most people think it could have been around 9 o'clock at night when they got to the disciples. They didn't care. They had to go tell them. And in so doing, listen, they fulfilled their role as a witness. Listen, being a witness is not about hearing. You don't fulfill your role as a witness to you bear witness. It's like someone who says, yeah, I seen this murder. I was there. I seen the police. Says, well, tell me what you saw. And he's like, I'm not telling you. You know, it's sort of a personal thing. Doesn't even make sense, does it? What would the police conclude? You're not a witness. Because a witness bears witness. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. We are witnesses. Have you fulfilled your role as a witness of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that new creatures are characterized by an ambassadorship. We represent him. We tell him. We bear witness. So do you see it? They understood. They were filled with joy. They have to tell others. I saw this at our Easter egg outreach last week. Me and Christina was sitting over, was standing over the tent, and she gave me the elbow. You know, anytime your wife gives you the elbow, it's time to pay attention. And uh, she said, look over there. And one of our most introverted people in our church was over there bearing witness to the gospel. She was using her hands. And... Witnessing doesn't depend on personality, but passion. And listen, I'm speaking of someone who, who is an introvert. We need to repent when we blame God for creating us in a way that says we have the right to disobey Him. We do not have the right to disobey Him. He created us to bear a witness. And it is not a personality problem, but a passion problem if we're not doing it. Amen? Amen. Someone give me one. It's true, and I know it's uncomfortable, but that's what they were doing they walked seven miles back in the dark because the disciples had to know He's risen. You see, understanding the gospel, listen, understanding the gospel brings a speakable joy into your life. It's true. It's a great privilege. Yes, God is ineffable. That means that we can apprehend God, but we can never fully comprehend Him. You will spend eternity of eternities learning to know more and more about God, and you'll never get halfway around His mountain. But He gives us through the gospel a language. A language that we can talk to others about the greatness of God. He gives us through Christ a person to point to. He gives us a story. All of Scripture that points to one person. 
He gives us a joy to express. The gospel gives us a speakable joy. It was at this moment in the narrative that we enter back into the main narrative with the other disciples. Jesus is about to appear to them. It was this moment that the two men on the road and the other 11 that the resurrected Jesus becomes a living hope. Let's see Peter talk about it. 1 Peter 1, 3. 1 Peter 1, 3. Just see, can you... When you read God's Word, you remember these men inspired by the Holy Spirit was writing. They were writing from their account. They were writing based off what they knew. And you can feel the author's passion in here if you'll just listen. You can hear it, hear it. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Is there any doubt that Peter had a living hope? Is there any doubt that he knew who caused it? He knew who caused it. It was God. You see, the apostles proclaimed the resurrection because they couldn't do anything else. They had to proclaim it. They had to proclaim what they knew was true. And so this morning, I just have two questions as we close our time together. The first is, I have a great concern that many of us may be following an unbiblical Jesus. You know, in a very religious culture, we have to be careful of that because people create Jesus, these different little Jesuses that look a lot like me, look a lot like you, that look a lot like them. So is it possible to follow an unbiblical Jesus? Absolutely. And in a religious environment, it's probable. So let me ask a question. Let's just look at a few of them. You ever heard of the un- everyone wins Jesus? Everyone wins Jesus. Doesn't matter. Jesus is too loving to send anybody to hell. He loves everybody so much. Everybody's going to win in the end. So it really doesn't matter. You ever heard of that Jesus? That's not the biblical Jesus. How about the legalistic Jesus? Do this and you can have me. Or do this to keep me. That's not the biblical Jesus. Before we go on, can I give you a little warning? If you find yourself in this sermon or many sermons applying a sermon to someone else around you or in your family, you're, you may be following the wrong Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit convicts you, He always convicts you first. If you're in a sermon, the first person you draw the circle around and repent of is it is my sin. I've seen the holy God. I've been convicted. Isaiah did not apply Isaiah 6 to his friends. He applied it to himself. I've seen the God, oh God, I'm sinful. Is that the Jesus that you're following? Don't follow the legalistic Jesus, but don't follow the who cares one either. You ever heard of the who cares Jesus? He's alive and well around Nobody's perfect. Jesus don't really care how I live. You know, nobody's perfect. Is that true? Is that the real Jesus? Or did Jesus say, when I regenerate you, when I make you a new, new, give you a new nature, 
make you new in me. My goal in your life is to conform you into the image of my son. And that involves change. That's the biblical Jesus. So it's not a who cares Jesus. How about this one? Oh, this is a good one. Jesus and me. Jesus. You ever heard of him? Oh, me and Jesus got an understanding. You ever heard that one? I know about chuckle. You've heard that one a lot. Me and Jesus got an understanding. We got something worked out. Don't need you to talk to me, preacher. We don't need to talk about it. Me and Jesus got a thing going on. I don't need to go to that church. No church required for this Jesus. Just me and him doing what I want to do because we've got an understanding. Listen, that Jesus does not exist. There is no such thing as a bridegroom without a bride. There is no such thing as Jesus without his church. This is the biblical Jesus. When we are saved, he brings us into the community of faith and he calls that his church. This is the worst one, at least for me personally. It's the needy Jesus. You see, I was that little chunky guy hoping somebody was going to pick me for the basketball team. Anybody else was, anybody else was that one? I was a little guy, everybody's up there, and I was sitting there going, Ooh, pick me, pick me, pick me. And you know, oh, you oh, just don't want to be last. Second to last is not bad, but being very last, you just can't get over that. Pick me, pick me. I... That's not Jesus. It's not. He's not sitting out here saying, ooh, ooh, ooh. And he's not here saying, oh, if I just had that guy on my team, we'd have it made. Can I introduce you to the risen Jesus? Let's turn over to Revelation. I love this passage. It should get you excited if you are in Christ. Revelation 19, look at verse 11. This is the Jesus that's going to come back. Listen. Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And that name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the risen Jesus, brothers and sisters. Are you following him? That's the question for us today. Yes, Jesus took on a fully human nature and he lived perfectly because you he walked to his own death and he absorbed the wrath of God for all those who put their trust on him. He rose from the grave to prove that he was the only one who gives out righteousness. But he is not dead anymore. We do not see him on the cross anymore. We remember the cross and remember he has paid it once for all, but he has risen and has entered into his glory. And one day when he comes, he will come back to judge the living and the dead. This is the Jesus that we follow. And when he comes, there's going to be no more suffering Jesus. And listen, when he comes, there will be no more suffering children of God either. So this is what gives us hope, isn't it? 
This is how we get to the answer to the question, why? So one of our members who lost her husband said, this was what gave me peace. This is how I moved to acceptance. One day, I knew where he went, I knew where he was, and I know where I'm going. And one day we'll worship the Lord together. This is what Revelation is teaching us. He's coming. Our growth group lesson is Revelation 22. I hope you're a part of a growth group. I just want you to read a couple of texts and we're done. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, my reward with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes. You can't wash it without Christ. If he don't give you his robe of righteousness, you cannot enter. You have no right to the tree of life, and you cannot enter the gate. There is an inside, and there is an outside. And only through faith in Christ can you enter in. Only he can make you clean. Verse 15 says, Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so verse 17 says, The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let everyone who hears say, Come. Let everyone who is thirsty come. Let one who desires take the water of life without price. And so I ask you today, as we have heard the gospel can you hear it? Then come. Are you thirsty? Come and drink. Because it's good. And it only gets better when we step into the presence of God. And so, bow your heads with me. We remember now Christ had to suffer and die so that we might have the right and the desire to worship Him. And so God, will you receive our worship now? As Lord, as we just come to you in prayer, we remember that it, you had to pay a high cost to give us the privilege of being able to do this. To being able to, even the desire to gather together and to sing your praises, to be able to pray to your name, to be able to understand your word. You had to slaughter your son to accomplish that for us. We couldn't do it, and we didn't want to. So Lord, we thank you for the gospel. And Lord, would you challenge us all? This gospel must be proclaimed. It must be explained. And we will trust you to do your work. And so now, Lord, we just turn at the end of this service to worship you. We don't have anything in our hands, Lord. But we know that you have given us both a declaration of righteousness and a declaration of adoption. And so, Lord, we can stand with the confidence that comes in Jesus Christ that we are holy in your sight because of your Son and we are safely in your family forever.
of good news that sets us free today. So, Lord, we pray for those in our families now that don't know Christ. Many of them are stuck in a moment of tragedy and misunderstanding. They don't know why this is happening. Oh, God, may your people put on your hands and your feet and love those who are suffering. Listen to those that are suffering like you did with these two men. Then wait for the moment to give them the source of their only hope. So Lord, we now come and lift up our voices to the one who is our only hope, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and in whose name we now stand and sing to your name. Amen. Stand with us.